Well, when you want to travel somewhere by car, you need to work, work out which roads you're going to take. And if you're like me and you have a poor sense of direction, you might try to, or you might try to use a, a GPS or Google Maps. And if you've never been somewhere before, you might need to use such a thing. But sometimes even Google can leave you in unhelpful directions or down dirt roads that you never intended to take. And so we need to be clear on where we're going and how to get there. And our lives are filled with many decisions, from what to wear, what to eat, what to say or not say, where to live, what subject to go for, what job to apply for, what path to take. And in our lives, some decisions are trivial and, and other decisions are essential and life-changing. And the most critical decisions are around Christ and how we'll respond to him. But when someone commits to follow Christ, it brings with it many other decisions. Decisions about what we do or what we won't do, what we don't do. And we'll hear today about how uh, our decisions about how we live can affect, um, or rather reveal, the decisions about how we live reveal the decision we've made about Christ and that can affect our eternal future. And so coming back to the question of roads, what road are you on? Is it the road that's heading to eternal life or somewhere else? And how do you know that you're on the right road? Does your life show that Christ is your Lord? We come this morning to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus wants to make clear that we have a decision to make. We have a choice before us. And we have only two options. It's either A or B. And Jesus gives us some word pictures to help us remember and help make clear what it is he's talking about. In life, there's only two roads. There's describes that there's two trees, there's two approaches, there's two foundations. And he begins by highlighting that there's two roads. If you look at verse 13, it's the broad road. It's this road that is spacious and roomy. It's got lots of room for varying opinions and different beliefs and low morals. It's the road of tolerance, of accepting everything. And there's plenty of room on this road for everyone. But just because everyone's on it or just because everybody does something doesn't make, it, doesn't make it right. You see, the narrow path, it, it wins few popularity contests and there's few people on it. But if this is the right road to be on, then how can I find this road, this path? It's, Jesus says it's by going through the right gate, the, the small gate. And this gate is small because few enter it. In, in fact, we enter it one by one. And where do I find this small gate? It is in it is Jesus Christ himself, isn't it? As we just read earlier from John chapter 10, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. And verse 8, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Whoever enters through Jesus will be saved. But, but saved from what? It's the destruction that Jesus highlights in chapter 7, verse 13. Yes, most people prefer the wide road, 
And most people will deny that going on that road ends in destruction. Most people reject hell. And other people deny that people will spend eternity in hell. Uh, Others will claim that if you go to hell that you're annihilated. But no, the word describes not annihilation, not a complete loss of consciousness or being, but rather it's describing a a complete loss of well-being. It's in Matthew 25 verse 46, it's everlasting torment, it's everlasting eternal judgment. Whereas in verse 14, chapter 7, it's the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. That's what's meant, it's everlasting life. And it's the life that in John chapter 10 that Jesus speaks of as this life to the full. Jesus is the one through whom we obtain this real life, this never-ending and incomparable life, this life with God. And, And we gain it only through Jesus who was sacrificed for sinners, who was crucified for sinners. And in verse 13, the word enter describes a a definite and specific action. So either you've entered this gate or you haven't. And if you haven't, then you're on the other road, that road that won't lead to life. As Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And to enter the kingdom and gain life, uh, this life, you can't carry anything with you. Pictures trying to represent there's a broad road, a narrow gate, go to through the cross. But if you want to enter this narrow gate, you can't carry anything with you. It's, I think it's a bit like being at the airport when you go through the metal detector. You have to put everything you're carrying down. You put your bags aside, you even empty out your pockets, you go through empty-handed. To come to God through Christ, he's the gate. We go through empty-handed. So that means you leave all you possess behind. All you possess, materially speaking, in this life gets left behind. And you leave the the baggage of self-will and self-rule and selfish ambition behind. It means that you approach God poor in spirits. If you hear when we looked at that in chapter 5, remember it means knowing that you come to God with nothing to offer. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. So taking this road is costly. You have to give up stuff and change your priorities. It demands repentance. That means we have to, it requires that we turn our our backs on sin and we turn to Christ in dependence. We turn to Him in dependent trust, the one who died and rose again. And even today, you can be saved by grace through faith in Him, through faith in Christ, or, or you head to destruction. It's your choice. You see, there's only two destinations. There's there's perishing or there's prospering. It's eternal destruction or it's eternal life. Which will it be for you? We'd prefer that there be many choices, I know. 
We'd prefer to have many choices, but we have only one. One choice with two paths, two possibilities, two outcomes. Choose life. But you could, you and I could miss out on life if we follow the wrong person, the wrong leader, a false prophet. And so we come to the next point, our two trees, verse 15. Believers, I think most of us, we're not likely to be taken in by a preacher or a leader who openly calls us into sin or unbelief. The problem rather lies with the, the preacher who seems spiritual, who seems holy, who, who prays and who at first seems to have all the marks of a Christian. False Prophets use the the right language. They claim to speak for God, but really they distort the truth. And today, some from mega churches, some televangelists you'll see, like Joel Osteen, from such people we hear much talk of health, wealth, happiness, and there's little talk of sin and no cross of Christ to pay for sin. False teachers. Jesus says in verse 15, watch out for them. Be careful of them. It's like what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 when he's farewelling the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that after I leave savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock even from your own number Men will arise and distort the truth and do that in order to draw away disciples after them. Jesus says these greedy wolves who prey on people, they are hard to spot. They come in sheep's clothing so that they appear Christians, but really they are impersonators, deceivers. So how then can we recognise them? Well, Jesus gets us to picture these two trees. Two trees, two lots of bad fruit. Well, two trees, two kinds of fruit. One's bad, one's good, rather. When I studied botany at university, I learned that there are some kinds of plants whose leaves can look the same. And sometimes for these plants, it's only the flowers or the fruits that can distinguish them. Let me give you an example. The the leaves of the plant, deadly nightshade, might look like potato leaves. But eating the fruits from the deadly nightshade, eating just a few of those blackberries, can kill a child. By their fruits, you will recognise them. And so too with people. Jesus is saying eventually... A tree's fruit will reveal who it is. A person's fruit will eventually reveal their identity. Thorny weeds just can't produce good grapes or figs. Poor quality trees cannot produce good fruit. And in the end, if you only bear bad fruits, then judgment awaits. And the fire in verse 19, it refers to the same hellish destruction of verse 13, 
to look at a leader's fruit. Not only what they say, but what they do, how they live. And verse 20 is saying that over time their lives will show them up. Jesus is not saying get together a list of uh, secular criteria to assess someone's fruit as if their success, their style, their charisma matter, as if their popularity matters. And nor do we look for intellectual, professional qualifications like doctorates or degrees. Jesus is saying, you know, you look at their character and their conduct, their obedience to God's word, because a person's character, their inner motives, their attitudes, their desires will eventually show through in what they do and how they act. And so ask yourself when it comes to the leaders you follow, the preachers you listen to, are they showing true righteousness, humility, Purity, not hypocrisy. Look for gentleness, generosity, someone who seeks the good of others. You see, good fruit is about a transformed life of love where we show Christ-likeness and the fruit of the Spirit. And whether you teach Sunday school, whether you teach youth, maybe you lead a connect group or growth group rather, The question this leads all of us who are leaders and teachers is, am I bearing good fruit? Am I bearing good fruit? Please pray for us. But this question isn't just for leaders. Jesus makes this clear in our next points, two approaches. Here he talks about in verse 22 what's going to happen on that day. And that day, it's referring to the day of judgment when all people will stand before God. In fact, they'll stand before Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And on that day, all people will have to give an account. On that day, please imagine God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you answer? Keep that in mind as we look at verses 21 to 23. Jesus says there will be some who call him Lord. They profess faith in Christ, but it is not real. Not all who say Lord, even passionately, are true Christians. Just because someone says they're Christian doesn't mean that God has saved them or changed their hearts. You see, mere words do not bring eternal life. Nor do our experiences nor do great works. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Prophesying in Christ's name, it could refer to someone foretelling the future or seeking to. Someone who says God told me this or that. It could refer to preachers of God's word. Jesus also mentions doing powerful works and driving out demons in his name. So the point is, doing something great or miraculous, even in Jesus' name, doesn't cut it. If people try to approach God on the basis of the great things they've done, 
even in Christ's name, they will be exposed and miss out. And if people also try to approach God on the basis of the information they know, they also will miss out. So maybe you say, Clinton, I've learned many Bible verses. I know the creed. I know the catechism. I know Christian hymns off by heart. Maybe you've taught the Bible. Maybe you've done many good deeds. Maybe others have been converted through your witness. Don't trust in those things. For what will be the result of relying on what we have done? Verse 23, Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So if you claim Christ, but have never trusted in him, Jesus will say to you, we have no relationship. You never knew me as Lord and Saviour. So I never knew you. Sobering. The problem was that they were evildoers, Jesus says. They just stayed in their sin. And so if someone says they're a Christian, but they keep on doing things that are sinful, they may not be. So it would seem that some believed but they hadn't surrendered their lives to Christ's rule and so they weren't really saved, they weren't converted. You can't have Jesus as saviour and not have him as Lord. They've deceived themselves and there are people, Jesus says, who've deceived themselves into thinking that they're on the narrow road that leads to life when really they're on the broad road heading to hell. God, help us to wake up to ourselves, if that's you this morning. Jesus says, doesn't he, in verse 21, only the person who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will go to heaven. How do we do the Father's will? In John chapter 6, Jesus is asked, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And he answers in this way, John 6, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So if you are asked by someone, by the Lord on that last day, when God, if God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? I hope you could say, Lord, I do not trust in what I do. I'm trusting in what Jesus has done. If we believe and trust in Jesus, we are doing the Father's will. But trust doesn't end there. Trust shows itself in obedience, in obeying God's word. And the point of verse 21 is that we don't just say Jesus is Lord, but we show it, we, we live it. And so one approach is to claim that you're a Christian and actually live your own way or rely on your own deeds. The other approach is to say, Lord, and really rely on him as saviour and live with him as Lord. And so doing the Father's will, it begins with 
saving faith. But that shows itself in, in obedience in our lives because there's a vital difference between simply saying and doing. Between saying you're a Christian, saying I follow Christ and doing it. James chapter 2 says, Faith without deeds is dead. Rather, we show our faith by our deeds. Are you showing your faith by your deeds? I hope and pray your approach is saying and believing that Christ is your Lord and that you show it by your life. Jesus continues this theme of bearing fruit and obeying God's will in the last section to foundations. Picture the two houses mentioned in verses 24 to 27. Might have been built about the same time. They might be beautiful and new. And there may not be much in their external appearance to distinguish them. Both might seem attractive, clean, freshly painted. However, one has its foundation built securely on rock and the other on sand. And only the most severe storm is going to reveal the difference. Now, the word for rock doesn't refer to a stone, not even a boulder. It's talking about a large area of bedrock, which is solid, stable, unmovable. While sand, sand is loose, very movable, very unstable, as any builder knows more than I. But the person who builds on the sand is foolish, Jesus says. From the, the Greek word moro, from that word we get moron. You're a moron, you're foolish to build on the sands. And if you do, then all that you've built will be smashed in the storm. You see, Jesus says when the rains come down, when the floods rise up, when the winds slam and beat against that house, if your house is built on the sand, it will fall. The great crash. And that storm could be a period of suffering or trial that tears away from you all that you've trusted in. But in Scripture, the storm sometimes is a symbol of God's judgment, like in Noah's flood. And it can especially be a symbol of the, the final judgment, which Jesus has already referred to. If we think about judgment in this passage this morning, remember Jesus' picture was destruction at the end of the broad road? Or there's the second picture was of fire that burns up the unproductive branches or plants. The third picture was of people being cast out away from me. And now the fourth picture, the final picture, is, is one where a house is shattered, even swept away by a vicious storm. How can we be saved from this? Jesus tells us, doesn't he, we must build on the rock. How do I do that? At the end of Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes Isaiah, and he says that the Jews didn't trust Christ, but they pursued eternal life as if it were by works. 
And so some people, they, they stumble over Christ, the rock. And, and then God in Romans chapter 9, verse 33 says, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So Christ is the rock. He's the foundation of our salvation. He's the one that we need to put our trust in. He's the rock of our salvation. Christ alone saves us from sin, so we need to rest on him. But in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has a slightly different take on it. He says, The house built on the rock speaks of the person who hears these words of mine, verse 24, and puts them into practice. They hear his words and they do them. They obey them. And so it refers to the person who hears and obeys Jesus' words. Now, let's be clear. No person can enter heaven or get to heaven on the basis of his or her obedience. But it's equally true that no one enters heaven who is not obedient. Let me explain. This because your good deeds are the evidence that you've built your life on the rock, Jesus. Good works do not earn salvation, but they do result from it. They always result from it. Conversion changes your life. And so if you're someone who thinks or says you are a Christian and you don't obey Jesus, you are deceived. God's grace, you see, that saves people also changes his people. It changes you and I. Our obedience in this life, it will not be total, it will not be perfect, but it will be real, it will be seen. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2. We know that we've come to know him, Jesus Christ, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. The foolish builder will always have excuses when Jesus makes demands upon his or her life. So I ask you this morning, are you making excuses? Are you making excuses for not obeying Jesus? Please get ready for judgment. Get ready for the end of the road by building your life on the rock, Jesus. Trusting in him, obeying him, living your life with him as Lord, with Christ calling the shots. For he is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. In verse 21, Jesus said that we must do the Father's will. But now in verse 24, he says you must do what I say. 
It's a big claim. He's saying, I speak with supreme authority. And in verse 29, at the end of the sermon, people notice. People notice it. He is already, in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew's Gospel, he's already been declared to be the king. Jesus is the king. He's the son of God in chapter 3. He's the conqueror of Satan in chapter 4. And now in verse 24, he's declaring that he is the real lawgiver, greater than Moses, the Lord himself. He is the authoritative one who reveals the will of God and directs the life of us, the people of God. He's claiming to be Lord and God. The issue the sermon closes with is, will will we accept this? It's about whether or not we accept this. Will he be my Lord? Will we not just be amazed like the crowds at the end of the sermon, but will we accept Jesus' authority and obey his commands? And when Jesus calls us to obey his words, surely he is referring firstly to what he's just been saying in this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount. Let's quickly review where we've come in the last 10 weeks. Jesus intentionally began back in chapter 5, verse 3, with this demand for spiritual poverty. Only those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, their need for grace and forgiveness, only they will receive God's kingdom. You are not good. I am not good. We cannot be good enough. Only Jesus was good. And he was good for you, for me. And then as people who by faith have found our failures forgiven in Christ, we are now to hunger to display his likeness, righteousness in our lives by being salt and light in the world. Do you remember, if you've been with us, that Jesus called for this righteousness and godliness that starts in the heart. And so we we were to turn from anger and reject lust and turn from lying and revenge and instead even love our enemies. And we give and we pray, not for show, but because God our Father provides us with all that we need. Instead of following religious hypocrites, instead of following the greedy around us, instead of following worrying people, we trust God, we love God. And we love others. Verse 12, as we just sung about earlier, we we speak to and treat others as we want to be treated. Loving our neighbour. That's what it is to obey Jesus and to build our lives on him, our rock. Are you doing that? Instead of just leaving this sermon resolving to do better, Please don't rely on your own strength. Rely on Christ's strength and God's spirit to do this. Today, really, we've been given two ways to live. And as Matthias Media's Two Ways to Live says, really gets us to come to the point where we ask who has the crown? Who's in charge? Who's king? We can continue in our rebellion against God and try to run our own lives our own way 
And sadly, this is the the option, the direction that many people persist in. And the end result is that God will give us what we ask for, what we deserve, separation from him, all his goodness, his good gifts, judgment, death. Or we can submit to Jesus as the ruler, the king, and rely on his death and resurrection, and that results in forgiveness and eternal life. So which of these represents the way you want to live? Which of these represents the way you are living? Remember I asked at the start, how do you know if you're on the right road? Don't necessarily turn to Google. It's by entrusting your life to Jesus. It's committing to obey him as Lord. It's by putting your all in for Jesus. Are you committed to him? Show your faith by your works, by your life, and ask Christ to help you obey. The commentator Don Carson helpfully says this, and I close with these words. Nothing could be more calamitous than to think long and hard on the Sermon on the Mount and then resolve to improve a little. The discipleship Jesus requires is absolute radical and gets to the heart of human conduct and our relationship with God and others. A person either enters the kingdom or they do not. You walk on the road that leads to life or to destruction. There's no third option. Nothing, nothing at all could have more crucial significance than following Jesus. And following Jesus means a deep commitment to seeking God's mercy and a deep repentance which hungers for obeying God's will. There's only two ways. And if you fail to make a deep commitment to Christ, you've already committed not to. Jesus' way demands repentance, trust, obedience. My question is, are you with him? Are you with Jesus? Let's pray. God, we thank and praise you that your divine power has given us everything we need for life. Through our knowledge of you, has called us by your own glory and goodness. Through your word, you've given us your very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Lord, for this reason, help us to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and love Because if we possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Lord, help us not to forget your word. Help us to make every effort to confirm our calling and election. Because if we do these things, we will never stumble. And we will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are any amongst us 
who do not know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Lord, we pray that you would lead them to take the crown off their own heads, stop wanting to be the ruler of their own lives, and that they might submit their lives to Christ as Lord and come to him relying on him. And Lord, we pray that you would help us all by your spirit to live our lives with Christ as Lord for the glory of our Saviour's name. Amen.